This is episode number 433 with Ben Taylor of Data Robot. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome to the Super Data Science episode. I'm your host, Dr. John Crone, and I'm joined today by our very special guest, Ben Taylor. In this episode, Ben joins us on the podcast for a fourth time, this time to cover the data science trends that are set to take off in 2021. This episode is well suited to anyone with an interest in data science, no matter whether you're a beginner or advanced practitioner, and no matter whether you're hands-on or an executive primarily keen on the business of data science. Today, we've got plenty for everyone. Some of the key trends we focus on in this episode are the prevalence of racism and gender biases in artificial intelligence, tools for understanding black box algorithms, training models without compromising private user data, delivering business value with AI, putting machine learning models into production, and the data science software libraries set to take off in 2021. Ben Taylor is a brilliant data scientist with an exceptionally broad understanding of machine learning models deployed into real-world systems, so I always learn a lot from him. I'm confident you will too. We touch on some serious topics, but Ben's got a sharp wit, and so we also share a lot of laughs. I can't wait to share this episode with you, so let's go. Ben. Welcome to the program. This is such a perfect moment because it was many months ago, the beginning of 2020, when I was launching my own podcast and you were the first guest that I ever had on my podcast. Now I'm hosting the Super Data Science Podcast and boom, you're here again, just like clockwork. And that's a funny story because I was supposed to be on your podcast in person in New York. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. So we were, we'd actually, we'd agreed. We had a time and a date set for you to be in New York to record. At that time, the idea for my podcast that it, it was like a live news show, all of us were there in person. And I couldn't believe it that the Ben Taylor was willing to be the first guest on my podcast. Um, and what happened? This like a uh, virus got in the way. I didn't think that this virus was going to be a big deal, but uh, obviously I was wrong. <laughs> Well, it wasn't public yet, but we we had just joined the Data Robot family through a recent ac- acquisition. So I was at Data Robot headquarters in Boston, and Thursday, I, yeah, I remember the day. It was Thursday, I think the second week in March when things were blowing up, mm-hmm. and I I was so busy in meetings, I wasn't following the news, and so my wife was trying to get a hold of me because people are stealing toilet paper practically from the supermarket. Like it was just a, you know, just a show at at home. So. Luckily, my co-founder came in and said, Ben, you have to call your wife immediately. And she said, get your ass on the plane today. You're not going to New York. So that that's how that happened. Yeah, well, it, mean, was, it was it was that week. Everything went from like, you know, you, 
we knew that there there was an issue overseas. We knew that Wuhan, China had closed down. I can't remember if in Italy things were kicking off already at that point. Yeah. In Italy. Well, they, they were uh, kicking off in New York because I remember the National Guard had come out that week. and Oh, already at that point? That the, yeah. I, like I it, maybe there were hints or maybe it was the following day. Like I, there was a lot happened that a day or two later where it, I made the right decision. To, yeah. Things were escalating quickly at, at, on that. It was the Thursday that you decided, well, not you decided <laughs> that you, there was no way. choice and it was yeah. a very reasonable thing to be, to, to go home. Um, let me phrase that the right way. Um, and, and it was the next day that all of a sudden nobody showed up to work with me. Yeah. On the Friday. Yeah. Um, and then the Monday was the day I was in the gym when the governor of New York announced that gyms were closing that evening, uh, and everything closed. That was the beginning, yeah. the beginning of the end. But now, now everything's different. We've got vaccines improbably quickly. And, um, it would have been too soon for us to plan to do this one in person. <laughs> we learned from our mistakes. Don't try to get Ben Taylor in person. There will always be a pandemic. Um, but uh, soon, soon you will be able to come to New York and we can meet in person. Yeah, I'm excited. I think a lot of people are missing the, just the peer-to-peer inter- interactions you get from data conferences. So I'm hoping mm-hmm. fall season will be lots of travel, lots of great conferences, face-to-face meetings. I'm I'm hoping so. I've already committed to speak at the Open Data Science Conference in November 2021, um, which is in San Francisco. It's going to be in person, apparently. Okay, that's exciting. So, yeah. Um, so you so where did you? I don't think we've mentioned this yet for the guests that don't know. Uh, where did you fly home to? And I guess where you've been since <laughs> that flight? Have you been on any flights since? I don't think I've been on any flights since. I did check. Um, I, so home for me is Lehigh, Utah. I tell people Salt Lake City because not everyone knows where Lehigh is. But Lehigh, it's kind of the it's it's really the the center of tech for Utah. So you have the Adobe campus, you have Pluralsight, you have um, the the Qualtrics acquisition for eight billion dollars from SAP. It was just south of us. So you have a lot of these unicorn tech companies that are spinning up out of Utah, and it's a great place to live because you have good skiing, good tech. Everything's close together, so the, so this is where I've been. I bet having a you know access to green space during COVID is nice. I don't know. I seem to be the only person that stayed in New York. <laughs> yeah, it. I feel spoiled because I I have a Can Am side by side, so I can go out in the desert, or I can go backcountry skiing. Wow! And, and lately, I've been running outside, which feels great to go running in the snow in the mountains. Um, so I, I can definitely put my lungs to work and get some vitamin D. Nice. It sounds great. I didn't know much about the Utah tech scene. And so even just that little bit is great to hear. Eliminating unnecessary distractions is one of the central principles of my lifestyle. As such, I only subscribe to a handful of email newsletters those that provide a massive signal-to-noise ratio. One of the very few that meet my strict criterion is the Data Science Insider. If you weren't aware of it already, 
The Data Science Insider is a 100% free newsletter that the Super Data Science team creates and sends out every Friday. We pour over all of the news and identify the most important breakthroughs in the fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. The top five, simply five news items. The top five items are handpicked, the items that we're confident will be most relevant to your personal and professional growth. Each of the five articles is summarized into a standardized, easy-to-read format and then packed gently into a single email. This means that you don't have to go and read the whole article, you can read our summary and be up to speed on the latest and greatest data innovations in no time at all. That said, if any items do particularly tickle your fancy, then you can click through and read the full article. This is what I do. I skim the Data Science Insider newsletter every week. Those items that are relevant to me, I read the summary in full. And if that signals to me that I should be digging into the full original piece, for example, to pour over figures, equations, code, or experimental methodology, I click through and dig deep. So, if you'd like to get the best signal-to-noise ratio out there in data science, machine learning, and AI news, subscribe to the Data Science Insider, which is completely free and no strings attached, at superdatascience.com slash DSI. That's superdatascience.com slash DSI. And now, let's return to our amazing episode. So we've got you on the program to, um, to give us some insight into the trends that are unfolding in 2021. We thought that there would be no uh, better person than you because of your passion for the data science field. I actually read recently um, that you were so excited about AI on stage that at a conference, at a data conference, obviously pre-COVID, um, you cried on stage with your wife and your father-in-law in the audience. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? What were you talking about? Yeah, so I, uh, I get really fired up about the future, just all the things that will come, stuff like a smart toilet. I promise I didn't cry over the smart toilet idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I get really excited for all of these amazing sensors that I don't think the data science team has really embraced yet because they're not widely available. So some of those things are localized radar. And then the idea of, uh, I had a ring camera set up at my home with seven cameras, but in the future when you have 100 cameras in your home and localized radar, which would be a, a very annoying today, like just handling that load. But with AI, you can it becomes more of a router. So everything's actionable things get escalated. So you can imagine a scenario in the future where if your kid is in harm's way, you know, they're choking, or we had someone in our neighborhood who was strangled by a blind cord, a three-year-old girl, very, very sad. That scenario Jeez. will never happen again. Yeah, so right. you know, parents are home, this is happening. They can do something, <laughs> but they're not, they're not aware. And so an AI system, so me talking about this hypothetical story in the future about how AI will escalate and if you aren't responding to your phone because you're chatting with a neighbor, they'll send the AI EMTs to your house to break down your front door and save your kid. And they'll do it all in record time. And so me telling this story, I got choked up <laughs> talking about a futuristic tech story to save kids' lives. It, it, it was pretty funny that I was that motivated. But I, I remember the, the emotions inside me were kind of, you know, the, the AI will knock down your damn door, save your kid. like. Yeah, well, I hope we can come up with something on today's program that makes one of us cry. That would really make for a good episode. My first uh, guest episode with Super Data Science. Somebody should be upset. Somebody should be bawling. <laughs> we do you want to volunteer? Or do you want me to volunteer? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So, all right, we've got a lot of topics lined up for today. Um, we'll try to move through them as quickly as possible because um, I think with either you or me, we're prone to speaking at length in incredible detail about things that excite us in the data science world. So I'm going to try to move us along as best as I can uh, because there's so many things that we want to talk about. I want to talk about um, delivering results with value and urgency. We want to talk about transparent storytelling with data. We want to talk about federated learning, machine learning uh, productionization. There's a mouthful of a word. And machine learning bias um, or ethics in AI. Uh, if we have time at the end, I'd also like to talk about software languages or packages that we think might continue to become uh, more widespread or really take off in 2021. All right, so let's start off with that first one, delivering results with value and urgency. So getting some kind of return on your investment with AI. So um, with COVID, there was a lot more pressure than usual to find, find short-term ROI. And that is absolutely something that I experienced in my company. Um, and so uh, in, your, uh, in your notes to me, you mentioned that the OKR, um, so objectives and key results, have become the new KPI, the new key performance indicator. So maybe uh, tell us about KPIs and how they vary from uh, OKRs and then this short-term focus on AI ROI. Yeah, so I, I don't think I can take credit for that, that statement. I think it came from someone who's at Goldman who said that, and I really liked it. And so OKRs are typically tied to quarter goals. So if you're in leadership or you're an executive, you're going to get bonuses paid out quarterly, depending on how well you hit those. And KPIs, I, I think being a data scientist, we've seen this natural evolution where maybe on the spectrum of idiot, you talk AUC, F1 score, just pure stats. And we know those don't work well when you're trying to communicate value. And so someone who's more sophisticated, they'll talk about KPIs or even use a utility function to map it to money, which is the ultimate KPI. You're actually talking Dollars, dollars flowing through business, but OKR, it, it really kind of screams urgency, that you have a good enough sense of the business, you're willing to work on priorities that will deliver value this quarter. And I feel like that's a mindset that we don't see in the data science field very often because a lot of the stuff we do is hard and it takes a long time. Yeah, that, that all makes perfect sense to me. I'm actually glad to have that explanation because I kind of thought up until that moment a second ago that OKRs and KPIs were synonyms. Um, so uh, I guess KPIs can be any kind of um, you know data that you're tracking uh, related to business performance, uh, but OKRs are more related to quarterly results. And those can change quarter by quarter. So think think of it, OKRs as you're putting special attention on the KPIs that matter most in the short term. And sometimes you make a lot of progress if you do have laser focus on a thing versus another thing as you go quarter by quarter. So with a long-term research project, which is going to end up needing to happen if you're really going to push the boundaries of what's possible in AI. Is it possible to have OKRs even for long-term research objectives? I think it is. Um, one, so one of the, it's a complicated answer. It, so to kind of back up, the recommendation for anyone who's starting green is you need to crawl, walk, run. So if you're a budding data scientist or if you have a new department, you need to get a quick win. And so I think you and I would probably agree that they need to think about the quick win, what's the crawl scenario? But then as they start getting some momentum under their belt, there are these bigger 
moonshot objectives that are very important for the business. And those aren't things you can expect to be done this quarter. And so I have heard pushback on this OKR over KPI where that's great, but you still need to have the moonshot initiatives. You still need to have the strategic work to make sure that you're prepared for one, two, three, four, five years out. I, five years out is really hard to think about from a data science perspective because everything's changing every six months. So mm-hmm. a lot of times we're just focused on the year. In five years, I plan on having an AGI. That's my... That's right. Five, <laughs> five years, five I, will, I will upload this body and get new knees. <laughs> exactly. Or I'll upload this mine into a new body. Um, so, okay. Um, this all makes perfect sense to me. It's definitely uh, my company, the same kind of thing. Um, when COVID hit our, uh, my long-term R and D roadmap, um, went on pause so that we could focus on, uh, delivering value. And so I, I totally, um, understand that it sounds like the kind of thing that you're describing, you, you described with this kind of green data scientist having, uh, a walk crawl, run mentality, I think the way that I end up uh, breaking it up with uh, my team in typical circumstances, so not when COVID immediately hit, but um, generally speaking, I have projects that I know are delivering business value. And those constitute maybe not the majority of our time, but the plurality of our time. Um, And then a second track where it's like, okay, I can see that there's probably going to be something here that maybe this quarter, certainly this year, it will bring some value to the company. And then a a minority of our time ends up being spent on really fun things, trying out applications of new technologies into spaces that um, I don't even know if if there is going to be value. Um, But by playing around with things, you often stumble across great opportunities. Yeah. And, and I think uh, for those minority projects, some business leader might see that as a waste of time. But I, I see it as value where I've really celebrated the, if you practice to learn to learn, you'll be better at learning. And I think I, I really have to get to that point because otherwise I would feel very sad about my college experience because I study chemical engineering and I'm not using chemical engineering. So should I have not gone to school? But the takeaway is no, in college I learned to learn. And now I can apply that to new problems. So you, and then passion is so important in data science to keep, to sharpen the saw. So by introducing yourself to passion in these, you know, minority projects, when things matter most, you're much more likely to be creative than someone who has not had that exposure. Yeah, that all makes perfect sense to me. You're preaching to the choir. So the idea here is to have, you know, trends in 2021. So is the idea here that because of COVID, OKRs, delivering value on AI is something that all of a sudden came to the forefront. And I guess the idea here is that even with um, vaccines unwinding, uh, restrictions, um, you're, you still think that uh, delivering value is something that's going to be big in 2021 and beyond. I think time to value will remain a, a key point of focus. And, and, that, and we see that in the data science community. It's becoming easier to do things and very, very quickly using open source software or platforms like data robot. And the thing I like to say is the the principal consultant today is the free intern tomorrow. And, and I'm just talking about the work they do. So you and I could geek out about some work we're doing, but if it falls in line into a common business use case, there's a good chance that one, two, three, four years from now, an intern could do that work. But today it's a, you know, takes PhD level understanding to really 
dive deep on reinforced learning or deep learning or some uh, federated learning or something that's overwhelming for a principal consultant, but expected of a free intern in the future, which, which is great. It's great for society. Maybe not great for the principal consultants. They have to, <laughs> they have to keep running. They have to keep finding new work. All right. So you mentioned uh, data robot there and I deliberately, so I learned something. So audience members, you're going to love hearing this. I, I learned something about you collectively today, which is that on the whole, um, based on research that Ben has done, if I was to ask Ben for his background at the beginning of the program, a proportion of you would have switched off. So I deliberately didn't do it. But now he mentioned data robot in a sentence. And you don't know that Ben works at Data Robot. Ben, do you mind telling us a little bit about Data Robot? Yeah. So Data Robot, they've been around for a while now, eight years. They've raised over 700 million. They just closed a new round over 320 million, I think, a few weeks ago from Snowflake. Oof. A few other notable investors. Um, so they they started with AutoML, and that quickly graduated to kind of end-to-end pipelines. So Data Ingest, which... They've done a bunch of acquisitions. I think they're on their seventh or eighth acquisition now. They purchased Paxata and a bunch of other startups, including ours. And Zeph, you did actually mention that earlier. Yeah, yeah. Now that I think of it. In yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So we yeah. So our startup Zeph was focused on AutoML for deep learning, and we were going after text, images, video. But the thing that was more interesting, it was combining those data sets together. So we'd have a single model that had multiple different types of images or audio and video working together in a single model. Uh, so Data Robot, they're, they've been a... Th- this will sound biased, because obviously I, I work there. I should have some bias, or I should go work somewhere else. But I, I do see them as the leader when it comes to applied AI f- at, in general. So if you look at the number of industries they're in, the number of customers they're in, and you compare that to their competitors, they just they just have more. They have more applied use cases. They have customers with hundreds and thousands of machine learning models deployed. And in being a data scientist, that's kind of the high bar. Is It's one thing to build a model and to deliver a BI report and say, hey, good news, this is accurate. It's another thing to deploy that model and actually sleep at night. Mm-hmm. What is that model doing? What is it doing a week from now? What is it doing six months from now? So I, at higher view, where I used to work, I, I was personally involved with model excursions. Train a model, it's static. Everything should be great. And then three months later, a customer's complaining. And turns out you had feature drift. Where did the feature drift come from? Came from a vendor. Vendor didn't tell you they changed the threshold. And so these types of, you can't anticipate all the ways your models will go wrong, but you need to have alarms in place. And so that that's kind of getting ahead of ourselves with the, this is kind of in the spirit of productionizing AI. Nice. Uh, that, uh, yeah, all those kinds of concerns are the kinds of things that I do deal with daily. So maybe I'm going to come out of this uh, out of this podcast experience asking for a demo. Um, I also, I think the data robot is a great name. I think that you really, you know, whoever did that initially and got that locked down, I think it's such a brilliant name for what you do. Uh, one quick thing that I wanted to make sure in case, uh, an audience member wasn't aware of it. So auto ML, um, automatic machine learning, automated machine yeah. learning. Um, the idea there is aspects of the model, uh, get configured automatically that wouldn't necessarily, uh, be done by a robot. It would be. Uh, done historically by a person yeah which which is really funny because i don't know if you remember this but some of the uh some of the early data scientists maybe the more academic types they really fought auto ml they didn't think it was possible 
they they thought you had to sit down and decide should I use a logistic regression right now or gradient boosted classifier like they thought that would always be more of an art than a science turns out it's just a science so uh, it when it comes to interpreting the model and making sure it's doing what you want that you really want to involve the subject matter expert like that that's that's still going to be a dialogue but when it comes to how to best tune hyperparam tune a variety of models, I don't think humans were ever well equipped to do that. Well, that segues perfectly into the next topic. Um, so talking about black boxes and understanding them, um, that was another trend that you identified for 2021 is uh, transparent storytelling. So um, there are tools out there. You listed some of them for me, like SHAP, GradCam visualization methods, topic discovery, topic discovery. Um, these allow us to glimpse into the way that a black box model is working. So um, probably many audience members are aware of this, but if you have a, a relatively simple machine learning model, like a logistic regression model, um, you can look at every feature that you have. Maybe you have 10 inputs into your model and you can see how each one of those is weighted and how that directly impacts your, your outcome. But if you have a neural network, you might have millions or billions, or even in some cases in the last year, trillions of model weights. And there's no way that you can look at the model and say, I understand what's going on here. So how is uh, how, are the, how do these tools, how, how is transparent storytelling going to help? So I've been able to watch this unfold, and, and you have as well, that during the last five or 10 years, the 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 need for storytelling has always been there because of the accusation of a black box model. And for anyone who's doing anything important, they never want to depend on a black box model because that just sounds really, really scary. So I think the black box modeling with deep learning that was kind of in the academic space where they don't have as much, they don't have to be as defensible. But then when you get into applied settings where you can have bias amplification or you can have a model that's just not working, it's doing things you didn't expect, the importance of being being able to tell a story not to a data scientist, but to a CEO or to a subject matter expert. Uh, it, it began to be enabled with uh, the GradCam visualizations where you can look at activation maps that became very helpful. The classic example with activation maps is there's a famous example online that you can search where a machine learning model is classifying a dog as being a wolf. And if you look at where it's activating, it's activating on the snow. So it doesn't care at all about the dog. And that's where AI can be tricked. So a AI and subject matter experts don't like that. So if, if you're showing that to a subject matter expert, well, there goes your model confidence. They, they don't really care what the accuracy is, is. They're super concerned about what that model is actually learning. Uh, the other thing I really like, this, is a, this one's a little bit more clumsy, but any deep learning model you train, you can take that final encoding layer at the bottom and you can cluster it and just look at a TSNE plot or your favorite cluster plot. And those aggregate groups are fascinating because it's essentially yeah. telling you a story around topics. And so uh, what we found, we were working with a client and it, it began to cluster out different topics that were unknown to something like an ImageNet. So an example would be a sleeping baby. So ImageNet doesn't know what a sleeping baby is, but by building these types of classifiers, we found that the concept of a sleeping baby was very important for an image ending up in a scrapbook. And so the joke is, yeah. like, we all like our kids, but we like them more when they're sleeping. You know, we take <laughs> we can take a picture of them. Um, yeah, so I, I think to kind of wrap up that that thought 
um, it's so important for us to partner with subject matter experts. And I've kind of gotten to the point now that I, I don't want to say I give up, but I want to invite the human that's been working the process the longest to the meeting immediately. Because I've been in meetings where they're t- the person you should have had in the meeting was a technician. They're not a VP. They're not, they don't have the seniority to be at the meeting. And then later when they get brought in, you realize all the mistakes you've been making. So mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of the underwriter, the technician. Find me a human that's worked that process for decades. And the machine learning side of things, we'll, learn, we'll get a lot of insight. So when you talk about transparent storytelling is something that takes off in 2021, you're not just talking about the tools, um, which are, you know, there's, there's more and more of these tools available for um, explainable AI or XAI. Um, but also what you're suggesting is that if it's not a trend, it should be a trend that the people who are actually down on the front line uh, building these models should be involved even in high level discussions uh, with management. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's mission critical. So even even some of these tools that we've mentioned, they might be a little technical. They're 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 definitely much more technical than a technician would comprehend. But it's our job as data scientists to get it into a format that is understandable or grokkable. Um, and and I think that's really how I see the world. I just see the world and the businesses that operate in it is having a lot of processes. They have a lot of business processes with data flowing around. And they are all opportunities for machine learning applications. And if you're not inviting the most senior human who understands that process through experience, you're missing out. It reminds me of the gray-haired technician, like in a manufacturing plant. Why does everyone go to them for advice on a new problem? because they have a lot of experience. Experience came through time. They've seen a lot of edge cases, a lot of outliers. That person can be really valuable in an AI discussion. I, I agree 100%. And... <clears throat> I'd like to think personally, and if anyone's listening to this and hasn't experienced me, me doing this personally, I think I'm pretty good at bringing those people into the meeting. And mostly just because I, I don't want to end up being in a situation where down the road, you know, we've committed to something and we could have done a better job. Like I, it makes me really nervous. Um, so I think in situations where I realize retrospectively, okay, um, we're talking about something here that because I wasn't involved on the keys, Uh, on the keyboard, actually coding this up. I haven't actually looked at samples of the data um, to make a note and make sure I talk to those people and loop them in um, before any serious decisions are made. They're also the best people to hold you accountable on what is the KPI, because the KPIs could differ. So if you're talking to a VP, they might have something in mind. But if you're talking to the the technician, they've got daily metrics they deal with, which may not be top of mind to an executive. So... Yeah. Like the AUC that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm embarrassed to say I remember having sales meetings trying to educate prospects on the value of an AUC chart. These are like a- HR prospects, not very technical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I bring up the AUC in pitches probably more often than I should, but I try to just say a hundred is the best. And look at how close we're getting. <laughs> I, I've digressed all the way down to the two or three bar chart where you can just say the third bar is higher than the left bar or the first <laughs> bar. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot more sense. All right, so um, I think that covers transparent storytelling is another trend. Yeah. So the, uh, the third one coming up here, the third trend for 2021 is federated learning. Um, so let me try to, I think I understand what federated learning is. You can uh, correct me here, but 
it's a situation where you try to learn off of people's data without actually getting any access to their individual data points. Is it something like that? So like, yeah, you, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's spot on. And and I've got a COVID story related to this that I, hopefully is very upsetting for all the people listening. It was upsetting for me. So I was talking to a senior health informationist in Utah. So that's the data scientist equivalent, but they actually work with patient level data. And they were saying that enough people, Utah has not had enough COVID deaths to understand the disease. I think at the time, New York had over a thousand. And so the issue was oh. the patient level data in New York could not be shared with other hospital networks. So hospitals oh, will no. share with hospitals, but they won't share across hospital networks because of HIPAA regulation and the process to get that approved. I still think to date, like th- this should be super upsetting for people that are listening. I still think to date, the US does not have a national database of COVID patient data. And so a lot of these studies are coming out of single hospital networks, but how nice would that be to have all the data in a single place? And so there's a few ways to approach that. So one way you could just say, well, let's um, anonymize it all, you know, take out patient identifying information and throw it into a central repository. And people, there have been some efforts in the past where they've done that. Federated learning allows you to just come up with a standard and the machine learning models are actually learning at the individual hospital networks. And then you can imagine the, the dumbest approach is they would just average their weights together, do like a weighted average. Yeah, and that yeah. would influence the final linear model. Uh, yeah, so that's the idea of federated learning is you could get around privacy law. And, and companies, this also becomes a problem when you get really big data sets. You don't really want them to be going around everywhere. Um, or like edge applications. You don't want all your data streaming up into Amazon to train something. You'd rather have it trained locally and then send weights up at the end of the day. Right, that makes sense. And I guess another potential advantage to this is even when you remove personally identifiable information and you put that into a central database, there's a lot of circumstances where you might be able to figure out who that person was anyway. And as we collect more and more data as you know, you're, Apple Watch and you know all kinds of examples like the example you gave earlier of having a hundred cameras in your home so that you know you can't have any um, you know accidents at at home anymore. As we have more and more and more data, stripping PII out of that, you're like, okay, well we'll take the person's name and birthday out of the year of footage that we have from their house. Um, you know, you're still going to be you know there's, there's identifiable information in data that we have today even when the personally identifiable information is stripped out. And as we have more and more and more data from more and more sources, that's going to become more and more of a problem. And there's some very famous um, data challenges that have caused problems. I think the first Netflix prize, they were able to reverse engineer someone's identity. And I think it ended up in a lawsuit. I I just know the first Netflix prize was a problem um, for that reason. So thinking about all the different ways that you can anonymize data if you get enough features, you you can it, it gets a little tricky. So that that's the benefit of federated learning, and I know some groups are working on that now. Uh, but the COVID example, I think, is for anyone that should be very upsetting. That to, to say something, I'm amazed that 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 individual wasn't mad saying that out loud. That we haven't had enough people in the U, in Utah die. It's like, right. you know, why? How can you say that and not be angry? Yeah. So I guess the trend here would be that um, these kinds of situations, it's another, it's similar to the way that delivering results 
Um, so the OKRs around uh, AR, AI ROI, yeah, I have so many um, abbreviations that I can't even speak. The OKRs around AI ROIs, um, so that becoming more prominent because of COVID, we'll see the same kind of thing with federated learning where um, COVID shows how if we'd had these federated systems in place before, then people in Utah could have been treated uh, better than they received. Yeah, um, or especially on a global scale, as long as you have data standards in place, um, the whole globe could have benefited much, much faster based on the COVID data, what's the patient level data. You, if you have the, the same uh, patient electronic health record with the same format and features, that becomes a lot more straightforward. And, and if federated learning really nails it, then the privacy concerns will be less of a concern. It's more about where are the federated models running and what, where's the central server that they can share information. I love it. That sounds great. Do you guys do uh, federated learning stuff at Data we, we don't right now, to my knowledge. Um, all right. Well, this next topic, this has got to be one that uh, Data Robot is involved with, uh, ML productionization. It sounds like that's one of the core things now that, that Data Robot's doing end-to-end -end, um, type uh, work with models. So um, tell us about ML productionization and why you think this is something that um, is taking off right now. Yeah, so AI has felt very experimental, and I've definitely been part part of those experimental cycles where you're working in a notebook, trying to build a model, and now it's time to deploy it. And we hear horror stories about throwing Python code over to engineering where they're not familiar with it, and you want them to productionize that code, or like an R script or something. And and there are open source tools that are making that easier. It's 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 really easy to throw a flash scrapper or some something around your model call. And there's there's even open source packages that will do a lot of that work for you. But when it comes to productionizing models, there's so much more to talk about. So one of the things we talk about is continuous learning. So you're going to get more data. You're going to have things happen. You're going to have a regime change. You might have COVID hit. Do you have a process in place for you to rapidly deploy new models? And a lot of AI projects feel more like one and done. They start as one, you know, the research efforts, and then they celebrate the milestone of getting one thing into production many, many months later. And so the appetite to retrain the model, and even when they do, it's like they're starting all over again. They don't, they don't have a process for that. And they probably mm -hmm. lost their initial training set. Um, that's never happened to me before. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just laughing because like I, I give all this advice and normally I'm just throwing myself under the bus of like bad past behavior where someone wants the model retrained a year later and you're like, well, crap, you should have told me that because that first training set is gone or can't be found. Yeah, um, or the way that you, um, the way that the, the, the raw data were transformed, uh, yeah. that could be lost. So, you're, so people are often good, maybe not you, but people uh, other than Ben are often good at, at keeping the raw data somewhere uh, in cold storage. But then it's, then you have all these different, when you're, when you're creating a model, you have all these different ways that you pre-process it and you might not have the, the notebook that that happened in anymore. Um, you might not have any, any safe versions of the data. And so you might have some amazing results from a previous model and you have the charts, um, you know, maybe printed out in the bottom of a Jupyter notebook or that you put in that presentation to management last year. And then you're like, we need to do this again. We need to retrain the model and you can't even get the, the, 
the same quality of result as you had a year earlier. Um, yeah. So I, I totally understand. Yeah. So the continuous model deployments one, the other one that I think um, needs to be a higher priority for people, it's prediction level, defending prediction level insights. So if I'm giving you a prediction, I shouldn't just give you a confidence score. I should give you a feature breakdown. I should, I should tell the subject matter expert a story about why this prediction is predicting high or low because you're giving them a little bit more intuition for them to raise an alarm and say, yikes, this is really scary. We need to escalate to the data science team where there's so many models deployed in production that are black boxes to the user. It's just, here's, here's a confidence score. Live with it or deal with it. Um, then the other thing we, we were already talking about is feature drift. So there, there's so many issues that can go, so many issues you can have with the model. And I think a, a naive data scientist might say, well, the models are static. So why do I need to worry? But your features aren't, and, and it doesn't matter what data type you're using. It may, you can get sensor drift. You could, you're doing deep learning. We install a new camera system, thinking that's going to be helpful for you. And the data scientists are smart enough to know that that's concerning, but what if they're not? What if they're not the boots on the ground? Yeah, and behavior is constantly changing over time, so it's hard to find. It's probably even hard to find applications where the human behavior isn't gradually changing over time. Okay, so maybe face detection, maybe faces don't change that much, um, but with anything, we work a ton with. Uh, job descriptions and resumes in my field. And so if I train a model and then a new JavaScript library comes out, I won't know what to do with that. It won't, yeah. if, if I don't retrain, it won't have any sense of what to do with that. Um, yeah. Like we had a, so with our old startup, we had an experience and, and this really surprised me. So deep learning, I think sometimes bigger always sounds better. And that can be, I'm not talking about the ways, I'm just talking about the training set. So if I told you I trained on a data set that was a million, you're like, oh, that sounds pretty good. But if I tell you I trained on 20 million, you think, well, that sounds really good. Ooh. Yeah, really good. <laughs> so I remember we trained a model. It was huge. We trained on, I think, 20 million images. And it was a not safe for work model. And we go to deploy this model, thinking, like, this model's been trained on, like, all sorts of images. And we go to deploy it. And it, and it had really high accuracy, by the way. But we deployed into the wild. And it starts misclassifying babies and diapers as being not safe for work. And the data scientists would just kind of laugh and say, oh, you just have to include more babies in your training set. But the thing that's more upsetting is we trained on 20 million images. So we trained on a huge data set and it still misclassified this baby. And that's an ex I, I like bringing up this example because I feel like it's an example where people can laugh about it, but pretend that this model was life and death. Like there are machine learning models that are life and death how could you catch the first baby? So, like, we can have a thousand babies come through and say, oops, oopsies, we're going to react to this. But how do you catch the first baby and not act on it? Like, you get the machine learning prediction and you actually raise an alarm. And that's why it's so important to have feature drift detection, to actually say that this feature set coming through is unique enough compared to the training set we need human eyes on it. And so I, I feel like that's a level of maturity that is, it's been foreign to the experimental side of AI, but for people who deal in production. Huh. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, yeah, I, I feel like a really bad data scientist right now because I don't have a feature drift detector of any kind. I didn't, wasn't really aware that that was a thing at all. That's something that uh, your company provides? Uh, yeah, yeah, they provide it for their pipeline. Uh, and I've, I've mm -hmm. built that stuff in the past when I was at HireVue because a lot of 
a lot of companies that have feature drift detection, it's because they've had to react. They've had an issue. They've had something, they've had a mess that they've had to react to and they've had to build systems in place. But for people that are out of the gate deploying, it's pretty easy to expose a lot of liability with what they don't know um, when it comes to bias amplification, feature drift detection, continuous learning, model deployment, uh, or even bake-offs, or can you deploy two models at once and see if one is beginning to outperform the other. So imagine if I did like a weekly retraining, but maybe I have rules in place that the new model doesn't replace the old model unless the performance is higher. Because that might not always be the case. So that type of business logic is stuff that should just happen. Like from a business perspective, that should just happen. But from an experimental side, that is a lot of new work that people have to sign up for. All right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that uh, we are at this transition point, and this is something that's accelerating. I know that there's a lot of demand for learning about ML productionization because um, O'Reilly, who up until COVID were one of the preeminent uh, conference organizers in the data world, um, they now run online-only conferences. They call Super Streams, and uh, the next one they have coming up in March is on ML models in production. So that's yeah. awesome. Big it topic. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, it seems like with all of the considerations that a largely experimental person like me worries about, and I hand off a model to the engineers to put into production, it seems like there's maybe orders of magnitude more things to worry about in production. And, um, I need to be more concerned about it. And probably a lot of listeners do too. I think definitely because engineers are very task oriented, you know, they're going to just get something done in the sprint, get it put into production. And the idea of being proactive and thinking about the possible issues, the data science science team has to own that. Because you can't expect the, like for the things we've talked about, you can't expect the engineers to say, I knew we were going to have feature drift. Like, well, no, the data science team needs to be proactive and have those, they need to have those conversations. Cool. And this probably leads naturally into the bias discussions because it's the exactly. same thing. Like yeah. every bad headline with AI companies doing something bad when it comes to bias, racism, and sexism, each one of those, if we, and we don't have to name names, but each one of those, they were reactive. They weren't proactive. So if you can be proactive and think, how can this model amplify racism, sexism, ageism, or other types of bias? Um, some industries make it easy because you have compliance. So if you're dealing with insurance or HR, they'll have compliance or banking. Um, but I, I think everyone should just be proactive. That, that'll really... That'll help a lot. I totally agree. Um, I work in the human resources space, so it's the like, we have to be able to demonstrate how our models do not uh, make decisions differently based on gender or ethnicity. Um, it's a huge part of what we do, but it is interesting how we've seen a lot of headlines in 2020 with big tech companies and models that they deployed um, having surprising results, you know, for sure, if they had anticipated that it had one of those, uh, you know, that it, that it would have this kind of result, they probably wouldn't have deployed it, but they weren't looking up for future drift, like you're describing. Um, so in 2020, yeah, as I said, I think, you know, with the time that we have left and probably just trying to avoid getting ourselves in trouble, uh, and, and speaking about specific cases, 
it does, there's, there has been a huge splash in the past year around uh, AI ethics. So do you think that 2021 will be a turning point where companies, including the big tech companies, move away from talking about dealing with these issues to really getting at the heart of them? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I love this topic because I think when you see examples of big companies failing, people want to throw their hands up in the air to say AI ethics is too hard, it's too difficult. And I've I've definitely trolled people intentionally where I've posted things on LinkedIn before where I've said, um, what have I said that has pissed people off? I've essentially said that solving AI ethic issues when it comes to racism and sexism is easier than rocket science. I I think I said I essentially said something because I felt like it was fifth grade math. I felt like it was pretty straightforward to get ahead of this, and that really upset people. And so there, there's definitely an academic thread where they feel like this is the impossible problem. We can never fix this. Um, and and I I want to make it really clear to people that are listening. I have a strong opinion that it's already being we're already making progress. So I, I know there have been things in the news where a lot of people feel discouraged, like we've had big setbacks. We already have the you know the work you're working on, the work that we're doing at HireVue, Pymetrics, where every AI model that goes into production has an adverse impact report when it comes to productive classes. So any model in production, go look it up and say, okay, they're held accountable for this. And then the other thing I like to bring up is if you want to accuse me of black mirror technologies applying AI in HR, all I have to do is point out the human black mirror. And if you look what the humans are doing in these HR processes with their unconscious right. bias, there are so many skeletons in those closets of you know biases with attraction, ageism. Like it, it's a very long rabbit hole of bias. Where yeah, there's a there's a story I know where I absolutely would not name you know anybody related to this, but I heard a story where. Um, a recruiter was told by a hiring manager, I'm looking for people who played hockey at the same school that I graduated from. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, That's very yeah. specific. Yeah. And you're like, wow. That's, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't yeah. have that be what you're looking for in this role. It wasn't a hockey player role. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a financial services role. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the, the the problem with humans is they can't escape their unconscious bias. So uh, having a name on a resume, first and last name, it's impossible to not look at it. And that's why you're better off having systems scrub out the name. So is the name really going to play a role in your decision? And if it is, you need to, you need to talk about that. Like, why is that so? Like, it, I, I, the, the, the other fascinating thing about AI ethics and when it comes to HR analytics, is there actually are examples where bias is allowed. And bias is allowed if it's mapped to performance. So people don't really talk about this that often, maybe because it makes them feel uncomfortable. But if I am if I have a call center, and if all my metrics are attached to first call resolution, customer feedback, like we come up with a list of business metrics, that's if I'm building models mapped to performance, and if I have uh, English as a second language where that's if you have a strong accent and it's negatively impacting my bottom line, in the U.S., I can legally discriminate against people. Not, I can't, I can't use their race to say, oh, I think you have this problem. I can put them through an assessment. 
So if I'm putting them through an assessment, if you find out looking at the data that I do have some type of bias, bias is fine if it's backed by performance. Most companies can't back it by performance. So you think of like mm. a banking teller or a flight attendant, they can't back. So the vast majority of companies, they can't back with performance. But I, I think that's a very interesting thing that people don't talk about that most of the time bias is not okay, but there are times when think of like the, the beauty industry, you're going after a certain demographic and you have a lipstick model you're trying to hire. It's probably not going to be you. It's not going to be me. <laughs> I like, have great lips. <laughs> you do. Uh, have great lips. Better yeah, than is it, there's a reason why I'm a podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. AI, we are making progress. So despite the negative news, we are making progress in general in the AI community when it comes to the research that's being done and the progress with biased models going into production. It still happens, but not for the people that are really dedicating their careers on this topic. Yeah, I, I also think that there is real progress being made, and you even see it in a lot of the big academic conferences like NeurIPS. They have tracks for AI ethics, and if you're doing research on AI ethics, um, I think you have a better shot uh, than maybe in a lot of other categories to have your research be featured uh, at the conference because the conference appreciates how important um, the topic is. Yeah. And, and real quick, I was going to add for your listeners, uh, there's a famous data set called the First Impression Data Set. It's a YouTube data set. It's seven seconds of someone talking into a camera. Someone went through and paid Mechanical Turks on Amazon to score people on Big Five personality, which is interesting. But then the, my favorite one is they said whether or not you would give this person a job. What's the first impression? Hence the name of the data set. And so I, th I was one of the first people that analyzed that entire data set for race, gender, and attractiveness. And then I presented my results in sh Chicago and showed that it was racist. So it was racist against black women. And it was even more upsetting to show that there's a very strong um, attractiveness bias. So if you're in the top 10% for attraction, men and women, the bias was bigger for women. And this really shows you the human behavior. And it was interesting because showing it at uh, PSYOP, it's a psychology conference, the people in the room were kind of under the, they always knew this, but they, this was like the first time they'd seen a lot of data to back it up. But if right. anyone's interested in that, the blog is called Racism Under Every Rock. It's on LinkedIn. It's pretty easy to find on Google. Racism Under Every Rock, and you'll find that analysis. Nice. That sounds uh, very interesting. Um, so we are rounding through um, now the topics that uh, we wanted to cover today. I just have one last question for you, um, because at least I have an answer prepared for this. Um, is Do you think that there are any particular software languages or packages or tools that are going to take off in 2021 that data scientists really need to be on top of? Yeah, that's a great question. It's it's interesting because I've been, I've lived and breathed deep learning steadily for the last four years, where I, I was, you know, presented to the MXNet group at, at Amazon. When I started deep learning, I started with MXNet because they had the best performance at the time. Uh, but huh. since then, I think TensorFlow and PyTorch have caught up. Um, Amazon uses MXNet internally at scale. It, it's interesting because everything's always moving. So I'm a very, I'm, I'm an out, out spoken critic of TensorFlow. I hate TensorFlow <laughs> passion. And really, and people that have criticized me, they say, I'm leaning too much into TensorFlow 1. And I've talked to Google employees that have said TensorFlow 1, version 1, was terrible. 
just a technical debt nightmare. And and I, I think I just can't forgive TensorFlow for that. And I know people are saying TensorFlow 2 is that much better. The problem with me is I've come up to speed on MXNet where I feel like I'm I'm an expert. Like I, I know that Gluon and MXNet inside it out. And if I was starting over, maybe I'd focus my attention on PyTorch because I think it's getting traction. A lot of interesting things happening there. I, I'm kind of sad because Keras was so intuitive like before it got mixed up in TensorFlow. So the original Keras package was beautifully written. You, die, you jumped into the code. The code was really easy to understand. The example I give is their image processing. Like you went to pre-processing, there's like an image.py file that all these complicated image transforms. And you go read the functions and they were beautifully written. So Francois, the, the original author, was coding yeah. genius. Um, but Keras never, it never hit the performance milestones like for throughput, for production grade. Yeah. yeah. I, so, so what, what, what do you think are the emerging packages for 2021? Because you're deep in this space too. Yeah, so I've never used MXNet. I've looked at some. I've looked at some MXNet code um, and kind of convinced myself that if I had to use it, I I could probably figure out how to do a lot of the high level stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily, so I got started with TensorFlow One and Keras, and um, I now am adept in TensorFlow Two. I've done lots of instruction in TensorFlow Two. I probably teach in TensorFlow Two the most, but I love PyTorch. I I use PyTorch now where you know wherever I can. Um, currently, the production models at my company use TensorFlow, but I would not be surprised if in the future we were using PyTorch. You know, in 2021, I wouldn't be surprised if we switched over. Um, some stats that I was looking at earlier this year in terms of Google search popularity. PyTorch has pretty much caught up to both the TensorFlow and Keras names. Um, and in terms of job postings in the US at least, um, for every three job postings that, men- that mention TensorFlow, there's two that mention PyTorch. So mm-hmm. it is really catching up. And I, I completely understand why. I, I think that TensorFlow 1, yes, that was especially clunky to work with. Um, so there was this multi-step process, a three-step process for you to even do the simplest, you know, I want to add variable X to variable Y. Um, it, it was this three-step process of allocating um, those variables to memory uh, before you could actually put flow data into them and add X plus Y. Um, so I think that's probably what people are talking about when they talk about TensorFlow 1 being difficult. But I still think that TensorFlow 2 is a lot more difficult than PyTorch. If yeah. you if you're very very comfortable in Python, you're used to code being Pythonic. You're used to working with NumPy, SciPy, and Scikit-Learn. PyTorch feels exactly the same as those. In fact, the vast majority of the time, the way that you would do something in NumPy is exactly the same in PyTorch or very similar. And so, it's just it's so easy and kind of I in a, in a way that's hard to describe. I have fun using PyTorch, even though. I've used PyTorch for way fewer hours of my life than TensorFlow. I enjoy doing it. And now when I'm presented with this from simple problems of if I want to calculate the partial derivative of something related to something, I want to use PyTorch instead of TensorFlow. All the way up to the most complicated things of building a deep neural network, I want to be using PyTorch instead of TensorFlow. So I, I will not be 
surprised if it overtakes uh, TensorFlow in Google search popularity in 2021. I think the DeepMind folks at Google use PyTorch. So even their like own TensorFlow, they, I, I think I heard that somewhere. I'd love to throw in a reference. Um, it, it's interesting because the, the TensorFlow does make me mad. And I've had all these arguments about it where um, I think the thing that made me mad was people would say, well, it's the most popular, so it's obviously the best. And it's like, it's the most popular for people. Like, if it didn't have the Google backing, would it be popular or would it be abandoned? Where that, that, and that's just my opinion, I felt like. But then the Bazel compiler nonsense, and then if I had a different GPU driver, TensorFlow had a really hard time keeping up with the latest GPU drivers, where MXNet and, and other platforms are always ready to go. They're compiled, you can pip install. Where TensorFlow, so many people were stuck having to compile their own TensorFlow to use the latest drivers. So it's just really, really poor software support from Google's side. The thing that TensorFlow still has today is it has so many side libraries for data pre-processing, input-output, serving, um, having your model packaged up smaller for running on an embedded device or in someone's browser. So there's all these... There's, oh, there's yeah. Whole... You, you have like TensorFlow JS, right? Or JS TensorFlow? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. TensorFlow.js allows you to have a model run in somebody's browser, and you could have trained that model on your local machine or across a number of servers. Um, mm -hmm. TensorFlow Lite allows you to package it up and put it on you know, a phone um, that doesn't have the same kind of compute as you'd expect on a, a server or a laptop. And so all that extra ecosystem allows you to potentially have more deployment flexibility. But something that I think people don't talk about enough is there's something called the Open Neural Network Exchange, ONNX. And yeah. if you Google GitHub ONNX, um, it brings you to a GitHub page that allows you to uh, port your models between different uh, deep learning libraries, including between PyTorch and TensorFlow. And so you could, like I enjoy, as I've already described, making my models in PyTorch. So I could you know, have a great time, having a great day, working in PyTorch all day. And then at the end of the day, use ONNX to port it over to TensorFlow and then deploy it in a series production system. We did the same thing with MXNet. So we would, because MXNet was really good at multi-GPU and I think TensorFlow for a very long time struggled with multiple GPU utilization or just the way that they handled that. So MXNet, it's literally a Python list if you want to do multiple GPU. But in TensorFlow, I don't know what 2.0 was now, but one was this graph object. Like it was so complicated. Um, but we would train on MXNet, and then we would use the open neural network to deploy to CoreML for iPhone or TensorFlow Lite. So there you go. Yeah. What one thing I forgot to add on that list, just real quick, is mm, remote yeah. work is so funny to me because before COVID oh, hurt, yeah. it, I remember there's a data scientist I'm friends with in Gunnison. It took him six months to get a remote work job in data science, and today that's laughable because, like, if you're good, you can be in Gunnison. People don't care where you are, but before COVID, yeah. oh, it's in Colorado. So it's oh. like a, it's an outdoor paradise. So if you're an outdoor junkie and you want to ice climb, go live in Gunnison. There's zero tech there. And so for people in data science, we typically needed some type of tech center, sort of, like at least somewhere that'd have a meetup for you to go and learn. And now with COVID, the, the opportunities for remote work are endless now. Like as long as you're, you have good internet. 
Yeah, and I, and I guess that is something that we can anticipate is going to change the workplace forever. I I, I was blown away. We did a survey um, at my company last week of, um, so it was just in town hall um, asking people, do you, you know, when we can return to the office safely, uh, would you like to be in the office full time? Would you like to be um, split between uh, office and remote, but primarily office? Then the other way around, so split, but primarily remote or totally remote. And there's over 100 people in my company. Not one person said full time in the office. Um, and I didn't expect that. Um, you know, I, I love being in the office, but even for me, having the flexibility and being able to at least spend a couple of days a week working from home, I think that there's a, a lot of advantages to that. I don't have kids, but I can only imagine how much more flexibility that provides. If one parent can work from home Monday, Wednesday, the other one, Tuesday, Thursday, I mean, it just makes, I can imagine that makes life a lot easier. Yeah. The, the funny thing with working from home is a lot of these homes that have been built, they haven't been built with work from home in mind. So like if you walk into the classic home and there's the front office right through the front door, you like walk through the front door and it's like, oh, French doors, front office. That is the dumbest design ever. <laughs> Because like, where's your noise buffering? And so we're we're building a house right now where my office is on the other side of the master bedroom. So like huge buffer with sound. So kids can be pulling out here and I don't care if I'm on a podcast or something. Like I, I obviously care, but I can't hear them where that your standard design of a house with office right next to the front door. I don't know why that is. Like you're actually going to invite someone into your office. Like here, come sit down. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't really know <laughs> anything about that because of living in New York, uh, the idea of being able to be far away from someone else <laughs> in the apartment, I can't imagine. So I, I didn't know that people were building their offices behind French doors right inside the uh, the front hall. Yeah, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Um, we actually, we had the experience when you were on A4N uh, early in 2020. Oh, yeah of your kids yeah it was so as we're recording the podcast we didn't have video at all so i didn't know what was going on but we could hear thumping thum, 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 yeah thum. they're banging on the door it, it, it's so funny that all the emergencies they have during a meeting like i'll be <laughs> i haven't had this during a keynote but i was moderating a panel and there's some emergency and i had to hurry and ask the question to the panelists then put myself on mute and the emergency was my Xbox controller isn't working or something where you're like, <laughs> that's not an emergency. So anyway, yeah, it, it's, yeah, I can't wait for COVID to be over. I'm sure like you to get back to traveling. I, I miss traveling around the world and seeing, meeting different people. Yeah. So yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, I haven't been able to see my family since COVID hit. Um, so yeah, very much looking forward to being able to see them again. All kinds of friends um, all over the place, speaking at conferences, meeting people at conferences. Um, but yeah, I guess the the big, I, yeah, it is interesting that that wasn't on the list. I guess it's kind of, it's just so obvious that you, and you don't even really think about it being specific to machine learning or data science or anything, but absolutely, I think it's safe to say that in 2021, there will continue to be remote work even after uh, vaccines are widespread. Yeah, which will, which will be interesting because I really miss whiteboard collaboration. And I'm yeah. sure some people say that there is a remote work alternative, but I haven't seen it. It's not one. the same. It's just, it's never the same. It's like, 
Yeah, it's been, if it's that's the thing I miss the most is for my science R and D with my team, being able to say, okay, look, you know, you've been banging your head on the wall with this particular problem for like three standups in a row now, three days in a row in standup meetings. Like, I I don't fully understand what problem you're running into, but uh, let's book a conference room for two hours this afternoon. All of us are going to go in there. You're going to explain from scratch what your problem is that you're working on. And nine times out of 10, we come out of there with the solution that ends up working or at least a path that gets us there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you just, there's no, no matter what people aren't, people aren't paying attention when they're looking at their computer and the million other things, like even if you genuinely don't have anything else on your screen, which probably almost never happens. <laughs> you're yeah. still your mind because you're used to this device being a device where you have access to all these other kinds of uh, applications. You're not there and present with the problems in a way that you are in a conference room with a notepad and a whiteboard. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully with the Oculus or some VR <laughs> office setup, we can feel like we're in the same room whiteboarding. It's possible. Uh, but yeah, nothing in the short term that'll be be a ways out. Yep. All right. So we're wrapping up here, Ben, but uh, we always end the program with asking for a book recommendation. What are you reading these days? I've got two books here. I'll show you real quick. I wasn't planning. Oh, man. But um, well, I, I guess it's your, your fourth time on the podcast. You're like, I've got to know. I've got to make sure I have my books right here. So Hooked, it's about building addictive products that are engaging. Um, so it talks about different gamifications. They talk about the hunt, the tribe, and self-motivation. So think about, it, it gives you insight into why Facebook works and LinkedIn works and these different products, why you keep coming back every day. And I just got this one today, reinforced, deep reinforced learning with Python. It is using TensorFlow 2 and the OpenAI Gym Toolkit. So I just got this in the mail. I haven't gone through it yet. But the, the book that is blowing my mind the most is the book called Immortality Key. It just came, the, guy, the author was on Joe Rogan. The book came out three or four months ago. And essentially, this guy spends a decade doing research on um, the origins of Greek witchcraft and, and their possible influence on Christianity. But the, the whole like evil witch throwing a toad in, in her potion, I guess right. that happened and those potions huh. actually worked because they were psychedelic so oh, like oh sure these long traditions of greek families having psychedelic wines and they'd find like lizard bones in these wines in pompeii and so the the, the book goes through this whole history where you realize that oh this you know they actually had witches and the witches were vilified and burned at the stake because they had a sacrament that would take you like you would meet God on this sacrament. Right. So yeah, it, it's been super interesting. Not, not your typical book recommendation, maybe. No, I mean, that's great. It was immortality. Immortality key. It's on audible. Immortality key. Yeah. I reckon I recommend Ooh. it on audible because the, the author reads some of the original Greek passages and he's, you know, sounds fluent. So pretty engaging. Nice. And um, I understand that you have a podcast that's about to overtake Joe Rogan's in popularity in 2021. That's my big trend prediction. Oh, so I would be more intelligent <laughs> tomorrow podcast. Yeah, uh, we've had a lot of fun with it. We've got data robot customers that go on there, but 
I'd say more than half our guests are not data robot customers. So we've had Congressman Will Hurd on. He led AI strategy for the U.S. Uh, Senate. Um, and then we've had a bunch of CEOs, CDOs, uh, have different, yeah, different people talking about AI ethics. So, so you know this being a podcast host that everyone you interview, you feel like you it changes your own perception. You get a little bit smarter. You see the world a different way than you saw it before. And so, I for me, that's the biggest joy of my current job is you interview uh, Anna Fry. She was one of our guests. She wrote Hello World. So these people are so smart. And to be able to like interview them in a freeform way and ask them whatever question comes into your mind is super helpful. Uh, at least for me. Hopefully it's helpful for the audience, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's what we're trying to do here. And uh, I have little doubt that the audience loved uh, having you on the program today. I'm pretty sure it's a record for Super Data Science to have uh, someone on four times. And so... Yeah, we'll have to bring you on again soon. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Um, yeah, is there anything else that you'd like to leave the audience with today? Um, just follow up with the stay in touch with you. Oh yeah, so you can you can reach me Ben Taylor Data on Twitter. I don't I check Twitter maybe once a month, and then on LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm the most engaged on LinkedIn. Um, best way to get hold of me. I think the last thing I'd leave with the audience is. The AI machine learning space, it's its so fascinating. It's fall in love with it. Be selfish. Find projects that wake you up early on, on the weekend. And, if, you know, we live in one of the most exciting times. You know, it's, who knows what we'll be talking about 20 years from now. And I'm sure many of your audience members will be involved in these unbelievable breakthroughs with AI. So very, very exciting time to be alive. Yeah, that's great. That's a powerful message. Uh, a powerful message. And um, yeah, since this is my first podcast with a guest, I guess I should also be mentioning that uh, LinkedIn is definitely the best way to get in touch with me. I can confirm that Ben is very active on LinkedIn. Um, and also that uh, if you're a misogynist in private messages on LinkedIn, you are not safe because Ben will post it. <laughs> like you be on your best behavior. I mean, this is just like, if your mom wouldn't be happy with your behavior, whether it's in private messages or in a public forum, then maybe you shouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. um, that guy actually deleted his LinkedIn, by the way, because that post um, blew up. It got like 70,000 views and people were tagging him. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, it's just the tip of the iceberg, the private messages that women get on LinkedIn. Uh, I can't imagine. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just a bit of backstory there. It probably doesn't make any sense if you don't know what I'm talking about, but somebody, uh, you know, wrote this really, you know, really inappropriate message, um, to a woman that he didn't know on LinkedIn. Um, and, uh, yeah, Ben shared, uh, those one way messages from that guy to that woman on LinkedIn. And I'm not surprised it took off. It's, uh, yeah. So well, we, it need, we need more of that. I celebrated it. And I shared his name. I didn't etch out his name. So some people gave me a hard time for that. They said I should have reached out yeah. to him. Why did you call this girl that? What was going through your mind? <laughs> it's like, I think we all know what was going through his mind. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. You know, there's some situations where it's like, if it had been some borderline behavior and you're like, maybe we're misunderstanding what's going on here. Maybe this guy deserves a second chance. Absolutely not. In the scenario that you called him out, it was completely inappropriate and inexcusable. And I think you did the right thing. Well, that's good. I, I definitely 
I sometimes you, you throw something out there and, and then you get pushed back and you're kind of wondering. Uh. But now I have I have a PR group at Data Robot that I have to answer to sometimes too. Where <laughs> when I was self-employed, I could say whatever the hell I wanted, whatever I wanted. I have to I have to use my filter a little bit more these days. All right. Well, wonderful having you on the program, Ben, and we will speak to you on the program again soon. Awesome. Wow. What an episode. Thanks to our fabulous guest, Ben Taylor, we covered all of the essential trends coming up in 2021, ranging from tackling biased models to federated learning, and from our love of the PyTorch deep learning library to how to deliver business value with data science. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, as well as a URL to both Ben Taylor's LinkedIn profile and my own at www.superdatascience.com slash 433. That's superdatascience.com slash 433. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube, where you can enjoy a high fidelity, high fidelity video version of today's program. Since this is the first full-length Super Data Science podcast episode that I'm hosting, I'd particularly love to hear your feedback. Please comment on YouTube or make a post tagging me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd be delighted to hear your thoughts, especially if they're constructive. All right, it's been fun, thank you. Looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you soon.